Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultraspeed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Hey, give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. So good evening to you. Happy to be on the air with you tonight as we bring you yet another episode of the Ask Noah Show. And uh, scale was a blast. And all good things must come to an end. And I'm, I'm not whining about this, but I am not complaining about sleeping in my own bed. Uh, I am happy to be back from California. I'm happy to have normal gas pumps that don't spray gas all over the place. And we've got some... Uh, we've got some exciting stuff coming up for you in the program and we're going to have even more in the next couple of weeks because we had some interviews that, um, need a little bit of editing, need a little bit of, uh, tweaking. And so those are going to be coming up. And, uh, if we have some time, we'll get to some of those this hour. But of course, before we get to any of that, we, Want to go to the phones? one 450 noah That's one 450 6624 Email live at com. That's how you make your voice heard and become a part of the program. Now, tonight, we have our Mumble Room joining us. Hey, Mumble Room, how are you? How's it going? Good evening. Excellent. I'm happy to have you guys here with me. There's not a lot of phones stacked up in the queue, and uh, I know that some of you in the Mumble Room have some questions, so let's go to uh, Joel. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How's it going, Noah? Excellent. Thanks for joining us again. How can we help? So um, I heard about that workaround during that special episode of the Ask Noah show that uh, pro- that was on the RSS feed. And I was wondering if there was a donation way that we sent, way we can send a donation to that company just so that, uh, that we can support our developers because uh, it is important to support developers. Also... I'm also a moderator of a certain of a Discord server, and sometimes we might have to remote into other people's computers, but we don't have like a server. What mm. sort of alternative remote desktop software do you recommend? So let me back up for a little bit. Let's break that up into two questions. So your first question is, um, can you donate money? Which project or company are you talking about? Simple Help. Oh, okay. Uh, so first things first, Simple Help is a for-profit company they are not it's not open source software it's not libra software it's just good software and it does happen to run on linux and i can tell you uh being a client of theirs for a couple of years now that they treat linux as a first class citizen so i am not ashamed or afraid or embarrassed or any of that to come on the air and get throw my full weight behind simple up i think they are a great company who makes a great product who treats linux as a first class citizen we have had issues crystal luca i don't is he in here i don't think he's in here but crystal luca has had issues i have had issues we have tweeted simple up or sent an email or opened a ticket 24 hours 30 hours later it's solved not they responded it's solved you get a response quickly they take your your concern seriously and they fix it seriously and um this keeps coming up, and, and I know there's a couple of people that are going to say, stop talking about Simple Hope. I don't care. Uh, 
And so I'm, I, I don't plan to drag it out, but as questions come in, as follow-up things come in, then I think companies deserve to get recognized. Now, to directly answer your question, can you donate money to them? Not that I know of. Uh, and the reason I say that is because they don't have a they're, – they're a company, so they just they sell licenses. Now, we could reach out to Simplope and ask if they would be willing to set up some sort of community funding model where we could donate money into a, a community pool and they could provide some sort of license or something like that. Maybe they would be open to that. I mean, they were talking about you were talking about that free workaround, and I was like curious, like we we need to support our developers, and I was like sort of concerned on that front as well with that workaround you mentioned last uh, episode. Okay, so to be to, to clarify, it's not so much a workaround so much as it was a generous employee at Simple Help that did one guy a favor. I am not going on the air and saying everyone should go ask Simple Help for free licenses. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that I have it on. I have it on. I have heard from at least one person that they are experimenting with the idea of giving out free licenses for personal support or heavily discounted licenses for personal support. That's essentially what I was getting at. Now, as to what I would recommend for su su uh, supporting in this particular use case, give me the layout. How many potential machines are there going to be? That you so, it, so it varies from because there are many... Um mods that have the that have like the technical ability to use a um, remote desktop uh, software and we're trying to access the client the person that's going to do like an AMA or something how to set up discord for them so okay but how many what I'm saying is so it's 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 unlimited really is the amount of users that would that you would need to connect to there's going to be you know one or two every day maybe there's 10 every day maybe there's 15 every day but it's well it's we connect to one computer per ama which usually is one per day per day that is scheduled we schedule okay. one so basically while there are a varying number of end users that are going to need support the amount of simultaneous support sessions that you would need is only one is am i understanding that correctly as far as i'm aware yes one or two okay here is the way that Simple Help licensing works, and we covered this on our special episode on scale. So if you're the kind of person that just goes to podcast.asknoahshow.com and downloads a podcast on Tuesdays when it comes out, or if you go to YouTube and you know and, and, and look on Tuesdays, go back and check because there is another episode that comes out on Sunday. And I'll briefly rehash what I said there. Simple Help does licensing based on concurrent connections. So for example, if I have one technician connected to one computer, that is a session. If I have 10,000 technicians that are enrolled in the system and I have 100,000 computers that I can connect to, those are not counted against the license. It's only when one of those 10,000 technicians connects to one of those 100,000 users that we establish a concurrent connection. Now, if one additional technician wants to connect to one additional user, I would have two concurrent connections. So in your example you would just need a single simple help license for $300 that would allow you to connect to that concurrent session. And the way I would set that up, the way I would structure that, the way I would use that is using their uh, instant access. So basically you visit a URL, the, the customer would visit a URL, the client would visit a URL. They would download software that, that is later erased from their system after they're done, except for that stub file. They'd run that stub file. It would launch an application. You'd be able to connect to their computer, do what you need to do, when you close it out, that stub, the stub file is all that's left, and they can simply delete that. Does that answer your question? Would that solve your problem? I guess. I was just uh, curious um, about that, and that workaround is only for like personal use, correct? Yeah, again, I want to make sure I'm being very, very clear. 
there is no official workaround to uh, I mean, understood understood yeah yeah so it's it is simply I, I had i had one gentleman that reached out to me and said this is my experience and the only reason i brought it up on the air the only reason i said anything was not i want because i really want to be clear about this i really don't want a bunch of people going there and and and, and haranguing these people about you know about their product they're trying to sell a product and it's absolutely worth every dime that people pay for it the reason i brought it up the reason i mention it is because a lot of people were very upset uh at the misunderstanding of the pricing. They thought every time they connect to a machine, it's $300. That's absurd. There's no way in the world. And I mean, we're a pretty decently large it company that is, we are international. We support customers outside of this country and we would never pay for a support program that, that you have to pay $300 every time you connect, nor would I ever recommend that to you guys. I would never suggest something that has that high cost. Yeah. I mean, even if it's in a business, that would that that better be one heck of an important support call to spend three hundred dollars just to establish a connection, especially when we have a, a plethora of other ways to do it. So no, the license is a one-time fee, and you get to keep that symbol help license forever. If you choose to renew at a discounted price, you can do that, and what that gains you is the latest updates. But the up the the version that you purchase, and in fact, really, the version that you purchase plus one year of updates is included in that original three hundred dollars. And the only reason I brought that brought the fact that somebody had a different experience is because it appears to me that simple help unofficially again, simple help is looking or exploring the idea of coming out with personal license. So if, if somebody has an interest in personal license, if somebody would be interested, they say, I'd be interested in it. I just can't afford the $300. That might be something that we, maybe you guys write into the show and say, Hey, we would all be interested Maybe we could reach out to Simple Help and say, could we donate or, you know, purchase or something, you know, a community, I don't know, license or server or something like that, uh, that people could use at a discounted rate or free rate. I, I'm not sure if there's something in there, but it's a company I would really like to see succeed. Again, one 450 noah That's one 450 6624 The email live at com. Eric joins us from, are you still in Washington, Eric? Oh, I'm definitely still in Washington, grain and all. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How can we help? Okay, well, I actually uh, I work for a company that has two different campuses, and the two campuses are connected via VPN. Now, uh, the problem is, is that I have done a couple of trace routes, and these trace routes, the computers can see each other. I can you know trace the route to computers. It's just talking router to router. But the minute I try to do a t- file transfer or a screen share or something, it, it, it just chokes. No, nothing happens and just a little background we did recently get a new firewall it's actually a, a new firewall router it's a mi- one of those microtech routers that oh, you always talk about yeah um but the the problem i'm having is that i i rely on those uh pipes to do my to do my job effectively so what could possibly be the problem between our old firewall and this new one that's co- causing the vpn to completely choke okay so let's back up a couple of questions. Are the routers connected VPN directly router to router or is it connected? Is there a client on the workstation that is connecting via VPN to the router? Now you see, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, unfortunately. And I've asked and have had no response. So unfortunately that's okay. So what, so what you do to figure that out, Eric, is you take your laptop. 
that does not obviously have the VPN configured on it, and you would plug it into the switch or the router and see if you can ping the a local IP on the other side of the tunnel. If you can, it's configured as a router to router. If you can't, it's configured as a client side. Now I'm guessing if did they have professional IT help when they set this up or did they do it themselves? Uh, I believe it was professional IT help because what you just described means it's router to router. Okay, yeah. If they have a router to router, they probably had professional they probably had professional IT help. Then the, so then the second question, and, and I'm guessing you're not, I'm guessing you don't have this information in front of you, but I would need to know what kind of VPN it is because there's a bunch of different ways and there are a bunch of different protocols and a bunch of different ways to set up um, IP VPNs. In fact, the way that we're now doing it is using IPsec, using OSPDF, OSPF for the um, for the heavy lifting underneath. Uh, but do you know what they're using specifically? I suppose not. If you Unfortunately, no, because like I said, I don't have the keys to the, to sure. the engine, as it were. Yeah, no, no, no worries. So um, obviously, without being able to log into the router, there's almost no way you're going to be able to, to figure out what's going on. However, uh, there's a couple of things that you can do. You could talk to the church and say, you know, I mean, it depends on what. So if you if you have like a file server that is in the other church and you have you know, printers between two campuses and you want all of the workstations to be able to access the file server and to be able to print. That's a good reason to have a router to router VPN, right? But yeah, that's correct. But if you have, let's just say you have, I don't know, 10 computers in one church and five computers in the other church, and you just want access to that file server, there's no reason you couldn't have each of those laptop clients dial individually to the VPN. Now there's benefits and downsides to, to both of those. Now the the downside is that obviously you have to create accounts for each one of these users. Um, you have you have to configure each one of the laptops or desktops that they're using. But the upside is if one th if one computer breaks or if one configurations break, they don't all break, and you can individually track who is connected and when. So it kind of depends on the use case of, of what you're doing. But if if I was starting from scratch, if I was setting up what you're describing, Eric, I would set up OSPF and I would set up IPsec and um, We've done that a number of times with Microtech routers, and we've done it in scenarios where we have just two that are connected together. We have done that in scenarios. Excuse me. We have done that in scenarios where we have a, like uh, four or five different offices that are connected together, and we've done it in scenarios where we have four or five di different offices that are connected together, and one is the main office and one is a backup main office, and so if one goes offline, all of the the VPN can kind of shift itself so that all of the network resources that we need are in the other building. But yeah, sorry, uh, go ahead. Well, that's kind, of, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, um, the two can, are definitely connected. However, they didn't rely on each other to access, like, for instance, internet or any, anything outside sure. of the virtual LAN. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, so the way of, yeah, the way a VPN works is when it finds, when it finds traffic that meets a i mean i guess it depends on how it's set up though too yeah the the best example i mean it's just impossible to know without being able to log into the router there's just no way to if you don't because we need to know how those route those those vpns are configured and microtech actually provides you with a really fantastic interface for diagnosing vpn so you can actually see that tunnel bounce and it will actually keep metrics of that tunnel so i had an employee sorry not an employee a client's employee and he was uncomfortable with uh, their company's VPN being in his home. And he called me up and he asked me, he said, the way that the VPN is set up, is it possible for you to see my files? Well, obviously, if we establish a VPN link, we can, of course, send traffic both directions. But we have, 
made some specific, you know, settings in the firewall and, and all of that because we don't want Bob's HP printer showing up on the, on the corporate network. Right. And, uh, and so I explained all of that to him and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. So I'm just going to shut my computer off at night. And I, when I first heard of that, I, you know, first I was like, yeah, I don't, I guess I don't care. But what happened was because Microtech actually keeps track of when that tunnel is up and when that tunnel is down, um, it, it caused a problem because it kept they, the, the, uh, it staff started to think, Hey, there's, there's a problem here. There's that, that tunnel is bouncing. Why is that tunnel bouncing? And what do we do about it? And so, yeah, we eventually had to, had to tell them to, to, to knock it off. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, without being able, and so if you could log into the interface and you could see if that, if that, you could see if that thing is, is bouncing, that's a great way to go. If you can't though, there's really not much of a way to troubleshoot that. I'm sorry. I don't have a, a better answer for you. Again, open phones, one 450 noah That's one 450 6624 The email, live at Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Mark calls from New York State. Hey, Mark, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Great to have long-time listener and uh, privileged to speak to you. Hey, Mark. And, uh, Pleasure to speak with I you, had too. A question. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, I had a question about a visitor management system. For, okay. Uh, I work for a nonprofit agency, so we're kind of slim on the budget. And um, <clears throat> I've looked at several solutions. Some are either prohibitively expensive or uh, Windows proprietary-based only. Um, mm. and I was wondering if, if you had some, some solutions up your sleeve. Uh, well, I do. I'm a little skeptical if it's going to be, uh, cost effective or not. I'm just looking up here. Uh, it is the, the one that we have used. Let me, let me ask you this. What all do you need it to do? Because the, some, some of the prohibitively expensive ones, they do a lot of tie-ins with databases and a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. So we, we need to keep a, um, a database of regular uh, people that, that show up um, often. Okay. And uh, so we will generate a barcode or a badge for yep. them so that they can walk in the door. We just scan the code and bang, they've been registered. Yep. And, um, and just simply generate a monthly attendance report. That's basically okay. the requirements Perfect. I have the perfect solution for you then. There is a software called BeeVisit. Okay. It is open source, self-hosted software, runs in a web base. It does do visitor passes. It is, again, it's completely web-based and you can generate um, reports. It does photographs, all, all of that stuff. I just, sometimes, for anyone out there that's sensing my hesitation, some in a visitor management system, particularly if it's a government agency or if it's a hospital, there are some security concerns and so they want names to reference um for example, a database of, of known offenders or known watch. It's just, it can, the, the reason that you're finding that some of those systems are prohibitively expensive is because they can do a lot. And, uh, and BeeVisit doesn't do a lot of, as far as I know, can't be tied into anything. And I'll put a link to BeeVisit in, in the show notes, but uh, it will do everything you are asking it to do. You'll be able to print those passes completely web-based. You can even do photographs um, and, uh, and generate those reports. So that will be no problem for you. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, yes, it does. Do you, do you know, is this a, uh, a web-hosted uh, solution or is this a standalone program? Well, it is a, it, it, uh, I'm not, a, I don't entirely understand your question. It is a, it, it is a self-hosted web-based solution. 
Oh, oh, that's what I mean, web-based. So yes. you know, we can have any computer access it via a browser. Okay. Correct. Great. Yep. Yep, you I just visit that. visit localhost. I'll have to check it out. Yep, check it out. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. And uh, shameless self plug here: if you get to a point where you say, "I want the web, ho- I want the web solution, but I don't want to manage it myself," you can of course send an email to support at altaspeed.com or call customer care one eight six six two eight zero fourteen thirty three, and they'll be happy to get you set up uh, with a hosted solution at a phenomenally low monthly rate. Again, open phones, one 450 noah That's one 450 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Now, I want to follow up with a question that we had last week. We had a caller who wanted to know how to stream music to a phone. That caller wanted it to play in high quality, and they didn't want to sync the music to the phone. They wanted to essentially create their own version of Spotify or Pandora. Now, I suspected that this would happen, and as I suspected, after we got off the air, many of you wrote into the show and said, here's my solution, here's my solution, here's what I'm doing. And I was pleased to see that some of the solutions that came in were, in fact, solutions that I had recommended to the caller. Solutions like C-File, solutions like OwnCloud or NextCloud. But the number one solution that I kept seeing was Tanito. And during our live broadcast from the scale floor, we told you about Tanito. And you can use Tanito with a plugin called the Tanito Plug. And at the time that I had gotten this recommendation, and even now, I still have not actually tried Tanito. And part of that is that the project themselves do not bill themselves as a streaming service, a self-hosted streaming service. They bill themselves as a competitor to C-File, as a competitor to Dropbox, as a competitor to NextCloud. They bill themselves as a file syncing application, which is not really what the caller wanted. Now, I understand with a plugin that you can make it so that it, it technically can do some of these streaming things. And... Um, so we talked about that a little bit in our, in, our, in our scale episodes. You can go check that out if you want to hear more information. Of course, we'll have a link to Tanito in the show notes. But after that episode aired, um, in fact, even Jason Plum, respected voice in the open source community, big fan of the Ask Noah show. Uh, we've had him as a guest on here. Even he said Tanito, Tanito with the Tanito plug. But after that episode aired, User Summer Evans tweeted me, and he said, here's what I'm using for, and I think this is what your caller is asking for, and I think this meets the needs more than Tanito. Now, Chatroom is saying they tried Google Music, and the problem was they ran out of space, I believe. If if my memory serves, they ran out of space on Google Music. You can go back and check. I think it's going to be Ask Noah episode 52. Double check me on that, but I believe they said they ran out of space on Google. And, you know, really, we don't want to be recommending Google to people anyway. We want to de-Googleify people because Google, this show is about owning your technology. This show is about taking control of your technology. And Google doesn't allow you to do that. Google doesn't want you to do that. Google wants you to buy into Google. And Google wants you to use Google and Google services. So that's why when that gentleman just called, it's not that we don't have other solutions. There are plenty of other solutions. There are plenty of hosted solutions. I don't like any of them. 
If he would have said he needed some of these more advanced features in a visitor management system, I would give him the honest answer. But we, when we can avoid it, we want to stick away from proprietary software. We want to stick away from managed software. We want things that are in our control on our infrastructure. And user Summer Evans tweeted me what was the perfect solution. And that solution is AirSonic. Now, AirSonic is a free web-based media streamer that provides ubiquitous access to your music. You can use it for music with your friends. You can use it to listen to music while you're at work. You can use it to stream to multiple players simultaneously. So, for example, one thing that we have going in our house is we have a music player in our bedroom, a music player in our kitchen, and a music player in our master bathroom. And I use all three of those every morning. When I get up in the morning to get ready, I'm usually in the bathroom and have it on in there. Then when I go to get dressed and, and pack my bag for the day, I'm doing that in my bedroom. And then finally, I sit down for breakfast out in the kitchen. And so I want to be able to go seamlessly from room to room and not have my streaming content interrupted. Now, on the LAN at home, it's much easier. I'm using Volumeo, as discussed in an earlier episode. But you could do the same thing over the network with AirSonic. Now, AirSonic is designed to handle very large music collections. Hundreds of gigabytes, in fact. And that's originally what drew me to it. Although AirSonic is optimized for MT3 streaming, it works for any audio or video format that can stream over HTTP. For example, AAC and OGG. Here's where it gets really cool. One of the solutions that we had recommended is Plex. And of course, by extension, then you would look at MB. And one of the things that Plex is known for is on-the-fly uh, Kodak transcoding. So let's say you have an uncompressed Blu-ray. It can actually transcode that video down to a 240p signal that gets to your phone. Because when you're watching it on a 4-inch display, you really don't need 4K video. You just need to be able to make out the characters, right? And data is expensive on the phone, so it's advantageous to, to transcode that video. Similarly, if you have a Roku or a Amazon Fire TV that doesn't have the hardware capable of decoding the video, you might need to use transcoding so that it can present the video in a way that that media player can play it. Well, AirSonic does the same thing. AirSonic has a built-in transcoder. AirSonic has built-in plugins. And AirSonic supports on-the-fly conversion and streaming to virtually any audio format, including... WMA, FLAC, APE, Music Pack, Wave Pack, and Shorten. Now, out of those, I would only use FLAC. Um, I might be, I could be, my arm could be twisted into using AAC only because it sounds amazing uh, for the amount of size that you can that you can you can shove audio through. But I'm not I'm not thrilled. But if I constrain bandwidth. You can set an upper limit of the bit rate for the music stream. So, for example, if you're at work, you can turn that way down if you're going over a mobile connection. And then when you're at home and you want to listen to your music in all of its glory, you can turn it up. And AirSonic will automatically resample the music to a suitable bit rate. In addition to being a media server, AirSonic also works very well as a local jukebox. So they have a web interface, much, I would assume, like Volumio. Now, mind you, I have been traveling back 
from scale. So I have not had a chance to actually try this. But of course, we at the Ask Noah Show are going to do hours of meticulous research and testing so that you don't have to. And we will report back to you on the air. But because there seems to be so much momentum behind this project, because there seems to be so much momentum behind this particular question, we thought we needed to address this right away. So the built-in intuitive web player is optimized for efficient browsing, as well as playing large media libraries. AirSonic also comes with an integrated podcast receiver, so you can get many of the same features that you'd find in iTunes. Now, that's particularly advantageous to me because the idea of having a central place that downloads all of my podcasts and then just having one app that I can go into and play any of those podcasts is really fantastic. And I know that you can achieve the same thing in Pocket Cast by signing in or um, I forget what the one on iPhone that everyone likes, but uh, overca- over, Overcasts, um, if you if you I, you can sign in and have those sync and that's cool, but it's requiring the cloud to do that. If you set AirSonic up, you don't need the cloud. The cloud is your machine. You own it. And it's just it's using AirSonic as kind of that central place and then just streaming down to your device. It's based on Java technology, so that means that AirSonic runs on practically everything. It runs on Windows, it runs on Mac, it runs on Linux, it runs on Unix. Now, I did some digging. In addition to the proper AirSonic source code, AirSonic is actually a fork of LibreSonic and Subsonic. And so you can check those two projects out if you'd like. But one of the things that has come from a mature project that's been around for a long time and been forked so many times is the mobile apps are are first-class citizens. So there is a project called um, DSUB, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes. It's available on Google Play. I'm not sure about the um, the uh, banana phones, but you can download this application and connect right into your AirSonic server. And I think this is a really fantastic solution. This is an ideal solution. If you are a person that's looking to stream your music media, particularly high-quality music media, onto devices that you own, you want to be in control of your technology, This is the software I'd recommend. So AirSonic, and we'll have a link in the show notes, or you can head over to airsonic.github.io. Again, phone lines this hour, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Chris from Illinois calls. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks Thanks for calling in. How can we help? I had a question regarding the upcoming Ubuntu 18.04 LTS release. Okay. Um, I manage the IT network for a small business around here, and they've made the transition on their back end over to using Ubuntu 16.04 for all their calendar, contact, and file share services. But their desktop clients remained a mixture of Mac OS and Arch Linux on some of their more advanced users. And now they want to consolidate around a single uh, environment and so they're looking at Ubuntu 18.04, you know, maybe after it's had its first point release or something. And um, this is going on workstations, laptops, and conference room machines. What they've been evaluating internally is Plasma and Gnome, uh, which one's going to be best suited for their needs. But they've got concerns going either way. Um, on the Gnome stack, they're not sure about, you know, Gnome moving to a plug-in-based architecture, removing some core features. And then on Plasma, it doesn't have quite the corporate backing that GNOME has. So if they're looking to train their employees and adopting one desktop environment or the other um, and using as many of the native applications as they can to that desktop environment, which would be the better route for them to go for the next, you know, three years to look at? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. And, and um, I really thank you for the call. That's, that's really fantastic. 
Um, I guess I would say this. Personally speaking, if I was just to give Chris from Illinois advice as best I can, it would be to stick with Gnome and because... As you mentioned, Gnome not only has the commercial backing of now both Red Hat and Canonical, but is also going to be the desktop of choice, because default reigns king, of millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of users. And Canonical is not blind to this. I've spoken with Canonical, I've spoken with people that work for Canonical, and they have said, we know when we roll out a desktop environment, it goes to more desktop users than any other distribution out there because there's canonical is just kind of the king of desktop Linux. And so for those reasons, if I was just giving you, if I was just trying to give you the safe advice, that's the advice I can back up most on paper. So if tomorrow you, if you called AltaSpeed, for example, and you said uh, you wanted to consult with me and we sat down in a meeting and you asked me that same question, that's the answer I would give you on paper. Now, having said that, what would I personally do if I were in your shoes? I'd probably lean towards going with KDE. And here's why. I have used GNOME on my laptop on every distribution. Fedora, Arch, Kubuntu, KDE, or, I'm sorry, uh, 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 not Kubuntu, um, regular Ubuntu, Arch, Fedora. I've used it on CentOS. I've used it on Red Hat. And what I can tell you is that it is fine for some things, basic workstation type tasks, maybe browsing the internet, checking some email. The problem is, and we covered this on an earlier episode, all of GNOME runs through a single processor thread. And so as GNOME, as they fix the things that are wrong with GNOME, that processor thread becomes more and more taxed. And as that happens, you find that the GNOME shell crashes more. Now, right now under Xorg, that's not the end of the world because all you really see is it kind of looks like the desktop is zooming out and zooming back in. And that's that that's the, that's the shell popping, essentially, and you go right back to where you are. Unfortunately, when we get to Wayland, it gets a lot worse because when that shell crashes, because, because everything is inside of a single source under Wayland and everything is running under a single process in GNOME, when that shell dies, all, everything that you're working on dies and they lose all of that data. And if we're not, and so 1804 is not going to ship with Wayland, so it's not a problem today, but the only way to fix that problem, as I understand it, is to break all of the extensions. So just understand that if you put those users on GNOME at some point, and I don't know when, if it's going to be five years, seven years, eight years, whatever, but at some point, they are going to have to go to Wayland. And when they do, you have one of two choices. Either we break all of the users' extensions and nothing will work, or they are going to lose their work every, it happened to me three times in one hour. Uh, and so for those for those technical reasons alone, co corporate funding aside, decision of the people who know best aside, the fact that there are going to be more users on the GNOME desktop now than ever, all of that aside, I, I can't sit behind this microphone next to this laptop running KDE and tell you that GNOME is a better experience. That is simply not true. And so for those reasons, all of our clients at UltaSpeed will be using some form of KDE. And we haven't quite entirely settled on if it's going to be Ubuntu with KDE known as Kubuntu or if it's we're just going to go straight with KDE Neon. It's actually what we're kind of leaning towards right now. And some of that will be influenced by um, the decisions I see at Linux Plus Northwest this year when I have a chance to 
meet with some of the people that are involved with these projects, as well as I know Chris has some machines that he's going to update. So obviously I respect his opinion and decision and whatever he decides that's going to play a role. Um, but as of right now, what I would personally do, even though it's not as defensible on paper is I would install KDE. I might even go with KDE neon, to be honest with you. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the call. Again, open phones, one eight five five four five zero noaa That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Timothy is calling from Virginia. Hey, Timothy, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, I'm just calling back from last week. I was the person who was looking for the self-hosted media solution. And I heard you just talk about AirSonic, but I was actually one of the ones that tried so this past week, I tested everything I could find, and what I finally settled on was something called Ampash. Okay. The reason I wanted to bring that one up was it's not Java-based, and it runs in pure PHP, whether you like that or not, but whatever server in front. And the reason I finally fell on it, and this is a nitpicky thing, was when I used any of these other ones that were based off of Subsonic, mm-hmm. Osborbis, M4A, anything that wasn't an MP3, when you had to use the web interface, it could not track where you were in the song. It couldn't get the actual length of the song unless it was an MP3. But for some reason, the Ampash one, perfect on everything. And the thing that I think you'll like is you can use external libraries to import music, and it even supports C file as a backend for your music. Really? That yeah. is incredible. And it's op- completely open source too, GPL license. That's incredible. So <laughs> that's funny. Well, here, let me tell you something, Timothy. I got to tell you, man, uh, if you had any doubt about the amount of attention that we pay to callers, let me tell you, you should be the shining example because I had more people reaching out and saying, "Here's, have you, has he tried this? Has he tried that? Has he tried this? And we were trying, we were spinning up VMs and trying demos of different things to try and find a solution. So I'm, I'm really happy that you found uh, a solution. So you, in your opinion, having tried this already, because I haven't, uh, if you're using all MP3, AirSonic is fine, but I'm sorry, what was the name of this? Because I need to get, I need to put this in the show notes too. It's Ampash, A-M-P-A-C-H-E dot GitHub dot I-O. And it's actually really awesome because, like I said, it supports multiple backends. You can actually even plug it into a Subsonic or AirSonic or LibreSonic and pull its library in, too. And it scales a lot better, in my personal opinion, because the Java runtime on all these got really high on memory. And, you know, this is just a PHP script. And with an Nginx or Apache, I use Nginx because it's lighter. I didn't even get to 50% on my DigitalOcean 1 gigabyte droplet. Man, I'm looking at screenshots of this, Timothy. This looks incredible. This is so well. It actually reminds me a lot of Plex. Uh, this looks incredible. Ampash.org. Yeah, and like I said, a- the fact that you can use sub... The thing that surprised me is that you can use C file as a backend. That's yeah, I really built into it. I really, amazing. I really like that for two reasons. One is because it's just genuinely a really solid software stack. But the other thing is because I'm already paying for storage, so if I have a C file instance and my music is is in fact exists on my C file instance, this is just the natural progression. That really really makes a lot of sense for me. I just want to call in and let you know that that's what I found, and I did a lot of testing myself, and that's the one I fell in love with. Outstanding. Well, I thank you so much for the call, Timothy. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad that you were able to find a solution, and uh, and I really appreciate the fact that you called back in to share your solution because now the next person that is fighting with this isn't going to have to. So 
ampash.org, a web-based audio video streaming application and file manager that allows you to access your music and videos from anywhere using almost any internet-enabled device. And so, so that's interesting. So they actually, huh, this is really interesting. So it actually, it actually lets you do video too. That I didn't expect. So I'm just looking here. That's really fantastic. Yeah, so we'll have a link for this in the show notes. This looks like a really well put together piece of software. I'm surprised we didn't come across this before. And there is, it looks like they have an online demo. So you can go to ampash.org slash demo, and you can actually try the thing out. They have their own servers that you can try it out. Sounded like Timothy was using it on a DigitalOcean droplet. So of course you can use one of the very many promo codes like uh, DO Unplugged and and be able to uh, to try that out for free. So that's really cool. Well, thank you again, Timothy. I really appreciate it. Again, open phones, one 855 That's one 855 4506 The email, live at asnoashow.com. So earlier this week, uh, actually, well, no, jeez, man, it was last week already. Uh, last week, we were, we ran short on, on time, and it's not a bad thing. I have said from day one that callers go to the front of this program. And so when you guys call in, we take a break from whatever we're covering and we go back to the callers. And so if somebody calls right now, one 855 we're going to stop and take that caller. But we cut our segment short on self-hosted services. And for the most part, I just, I dumped most of them because we did the episode and it's, it's fine, you know. Uh, but there are some that I felt was absolutely necessary to move over. Now, one of the ongoing discussions, because I am in numerous IT groups, I'm in Facebook IT groups, I'm in Telegram IT groups, I am in Slack IT groups, I'm in a number of these groups where we discuss IT technology. And some of them are from other business owners that implement solutions for their clients, as well as WISPs. And there is one piece of software that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And that software is SimpleWall. Now, SimpleWall is a free and simple way to protect your small business network. SimpleWall is a, they have a free edition, so you don't have to pay. And it's a robust firewall security appliance. So basically, you download the ISO and you burn it onto a drive and you stick it into one of the very many hardware-based devices that you can buy off of eBay that are specifically designed for routers and firewall appliances. And you're able to have a true commercial grade firewall appliance. Now, one of the things that SimpleWall does that I think is really cool, even though this kind of goes against, we just spent a bunch of time talking about self-hosting. I see this on so many groups, I figure it's necessary to mention it here. One of the things you can do is register it to your SimpleWall account, and you can start to do dynamic content filtering. You can do rule engines. You can do bandwidth management. And of course, you can log into your account from anywhere and of course, stay on top of managing your router. SimpleWall helps you keep track of all of the important aspects of your network. So you can keep track of alerts. You can use their dashboard to see kind of like a snapshot of your network. You get comprehensive intrusion protection if you pay for their uh, for their services. It's not terribly expensive, the premium version. Virus protection, spam protection, all of that stuff is bundled in. And where that stuff comes in is we have we had callers way back in episode four or five, I think, and where they were talking about kids. And trying to keep kids, uh, 
trying to keep kids from doing bad things and and how do you filter that content and how do you you know do management of 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 filtering and stuff like that well simple wall seems like a great way to do that now it's not open source and again you do register it with their little account services thing so i'm not it's not something i would put in my own home it's not something that i'm going to use um but yeah and chat room is is jumping right onto this they're saying check this out simple wall versus sonic wall uh, versus smooth wall. And I think what you'll find is when you start comparing them to other firewalls in the same class, what you'll find is that smooth wall is the less of the, of the evils. So, and if you disagree with me, give me a call one 855 450 live at com. Coming up, I want to tell you about Neatrio. Neatrio is another self-hosted service. Again, this is not something, or uh, sorry, not self-hosted, but a, another service that you can use for monitoring your network. It was one of the things that was submitted when I asked for feedback on what services do you run, what things do you use to manage your network. We'll get to that right after these calls. We'll go back to the phones. Let's see here. Who do we have here? Chris, West Virginia. Hey, Chris. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How you doing? Excellent. How can we help? Um, I was wondering how, how to set up Let's Encrypt on a C file server. Yes, sir. Uh, so here's the great thing about Let's Encrypt. And I actually knew you were going to ask that because you had asked me about that before. And I'm just trying to find here. I have a document on exactly how to set up a C file. And in there is what you use to do. The SSL, but basically, here's here's basically the point. Basically, the answer to your question is you use the CertBot, and what CertBot will do is it will automatically go out and find, um, it will automatically go out and find what uh, I can't find. It. I'm sorry, I'll have it in the show notes for you, Chris. Uh, the the what CertBot does is it goes out and finds what web server is running. So if you configured it with Apache, if you configured it with Nginx, whatever it is, it finds that. And it will automatically insert and configure HTTPS. Then it will go back and automatically redirect all of the HTTP traffic over to HTTPS. And then finally, it will handle the renewal system. So you can run a command on CertBot that will automatically renew your SSL certificate. So basically what I'm telling you is you can get an SSL certificate. You can renew that certificate uh, every time it expires. And with SSL certificate or with us, um, excuse me, let's encrypt certificates. They expire every 30 days. So that can actually start to be kind of a pain, but that entire process can be automated and scripted and it works great with C file. But now now let me ask you this. Why do you want an actual SSL cert rather than like a self-signed cert? Um, I don't know. The self-signed cert, a lot of things will complain uh, Chrome, Firefox, uh, you know, if you browse it with the browser, you won't get comp- uh, complaints if it's there. Yeah, that's um, true. Um, I guess so the if way I wanted to sell it as a managed hosting. Yes. I would want, uh, yes. You know, if I want to offer it as a hosting thing. Right. That is, that's kind of where I was going with it. So, for those of you who aren't following this conversation, if you self-sign a cert, by the way, we have a great video about this. I don't know why I'm explaining this on the air. If you go to YouTube and look under the Ask Noah channel, we have a great video that explains exactly what what I'm about to say. But I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the TLDR. If I take my computer and generate a cryptographical signature, 
and insert that cryptographical signature into a certificate and put that certificate on a server, that is a, uh, it will work. It's a secure connection. I have a, a client can connect to the server and you can establish a perfectly secure tunnel. That works. However, because the authenticity of that certificate can't be verified. In other words, if I generate a secure certificate and the client computer connects and then disconnects and Joe bad guy takes my server out of the equation and puts a new server back in with a new SSL certificate. And then my, my user tries to connect. Now he still has a secure connection, but it's a different server. So we'd have to have some sort of way of tracking if that certificate changed or not. Well, because the certificate is self-signed, we can't actually track if it's the same certificate that we checked or that we had as last time. Now you can manually go look at the, at the security certificate, but ain't no one got time for that. Right. And so what we have is a central place that stores all of the known certificates, the public signatures for all of the known certificates. And that is called a certificate authority. Now, there are two ways that a certificate authority works. The first way is they verify what we call DV or domain level verification and domain level verification verifies by having you add some magic to your DNS records. If you can modify the DNS records, you must obviously own the domain. And so in doing that, they can prove that you are in fact the owner of the domain. Now, in our video, we do an example where we buy the domain Dell.casa. It is a top-level domain that has the word Dell in it that is not in any way affiliated with Dell. And the purpose of doing that is to prove that even though I have no affiliation and no relationship and no uh, agreement with Dell, in fact, as far as I'm aware, they don't even know we made the video, I can go purchase a top-level domain appearing for Dell and to a user that maybe doesn't know any better they will go to Dell.casa and we have generated an SSL certificate. And so that user can connect and they don't know the difference. Now, when a certificate is generated by a certificate authority, the browser trusts that certificate authority. And so we do have then a way of tracking which certificates have been seen before and which haven't. And so instead of the user getting the scary message that Chris uh, was just Chris from Virginia was just referring to, which is the, the thing that pops up and says, this, this computer may not be able to be trusted. Do you still want to connect? And you have to click yes. Instead of getting that message, you get a nice green little padlock showing that, yes, in fact, it has been trusted. Now, there's one step more that you can do, and that's what we call organizational verification. Now, organizational verification actually goes one step further and requires you to submit proof that not only do you control the domain, not only did you buy some top-level domain, but you are, in fact, authorized and associated with the company you claim to represent. And that is called organizational verification. Now, my argument between organizational verification and domain level verification has been, will be, always will be, that no user checks to see which certificate authority they are using. And I understand there are some minor differences in the address bar that, that occur, but the reality is everyone just looks at the green padlock. We don't look to see if the, what is, is it the text that turns, let me see here. Let's go to google.com. Is it the text that turns green? I think it's the HTTPS that something turns, something else, something happens in the address bar. I don't quite remember what, but the, um, nobody actually checks into that. They get the green padlock. They're fine. In fact, I would even argue half the users wouldn't even notice that they don't have SSL. They wouldn't even notice as long as they don't get the scary gram, they don't care. And we get clients all the time that have a web server running 
and they will tell us, hey, could you shut off that that uh, that annoying message? And I said, well, you really can't. You can either buy an SSL certificate or you can uh, or you can shut SSL off. And they go, well, just shut SSL off because it really makes people nervous saying that the, the computer is insecure. So in a large way, it's really a bad setup of security to begin with because the users will prefer an actually less secure environment over a more secure environment that seems less secure. So the message isn't really worded very well, actually. In fact, we should get a scarygram every time you visit a non-SSL site. How about that? But I don't see anyone making videos on the internet about how unencrypted traffic is dangerous and, and silly. And Chatroom is pointing this out. Expensive SSL. Expensive SSL. And, and that is the challenge that we faced for many years. For a long, long time, if you wanted to purchase an SSL certificate, you had to go to VeriSign or go to whoever, and you would purchase, you know, it could be a couple hundred dollars. We have, I have seen up, upwards of a thousand dollars that they spend on certificates. And that's a lot of money. And so people have primarily gone to one of two things, either not using SSL at all or self-signing until Let's Encrypt came out. And when Let's Encrypt came out, now we had a certificate authority that offered renewals completely free and provided you with all of the same security without any of the downsides because you get the little green padlock, you don't have to pay anything, and it's actually a secure connection. And the only downside, because somebody on the internet had to find a downside with with uh, C-File, is that, or I'm sorry, um, Let's Encrypt, the only downside is that you have to automate the renewals because it requires you to renew the certificate every 30 days to prove that you still want the certificate. And so to do that, uh, it's very simple. You can use a program called CertBot and you can write a small little script that automatically goes out and checks twice a day to see if that certificate needs to be renewed. Now, if it does, it renews the certificate. If it doesn't need to be renewed, nothing bad happens. And I think you're allowed to check something like, it's something ridiculous. It's something like 25 times a day or 24 times a day or something. So you're checking twice and, and you're fine. If that 30 days ever comes up, it'll be just fine. Again, open phones, one 450 noah That's one 450 6624 The email, live at com. James is calling from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Yeah, I, I need to know if there's a viable way to, um, I mean, Get the wording right. Uh, I guess it would be add your own categories to the cinnamon menu, not edit the names of them, because my uh, categories are all filled in and the list is getting ridiculously long. Okay. So I thought if I um, added my own categories, like break games into my games and games or something like that, then I could uh, manage it easier. I don't know, but let me bring my mumbo. I don't know off the top of my head, James, but let me bring my mumbo room in and see if they have any ideas. Hey, mumbo room, do you have any ideas on how James can make individual category folders inside of his, uh, was it cinnamon desktop that you have and then store his applications in there? So he has an easier way to cinnamon. Mint, so he has easier ways to organize them. Uh, I might have something. Yeah, it's a program that called a la carte and with a la carte you can manage the, the whole thing. Yep, that's what I was going to suggest. He read my mind. I was going to suggest the same thing actually, no. Okay, a la carte. How do I spell that? I'm going to put that in the show notes for him. A L A C A R T E. Okay, a la carte and it's it's uh it's a it's a it's a deb or it's a PPA or 
It's a dev. It's, it's actually extended. native on pretty much every distro. Oh, it is. Okay. So there you go, James. That's what I, and of course we'll have a link for you in the, uh, in the show notes, but uh, a la carte, we have that in there. So thanks. I really appreciate it. Mumble room and chat room sent me a really fantastic link. <clears throat> it, it gives a, and I'll put this in the show notes as well. It gives an example of exactly how the different levels of certification appear. So for example, if you have just a domain level certification, you're just going to get the padlock. If you have a, a an extended validation, it's going to show you the the um uh the 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 company name in green and then it'll show HTTPS in green and then if you have a organizational verification uh, organizational uh certification it's actually going to change the color of the address bar uh and in in let's see it changes the color of the address bar in IE and in Chrome you're going to get not only the padlock but you're going to get a little green sign that says secure and HTTPS is going to turn green so there you go. And we'll have that link for you in the show notes as well. Again, open phones this hour, one 450 noaa That's one 450 6624 The email, live at Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. I want to talk to you about a project that, or a company that uh, is actually from a viewer, a listener of the show. And that is Nitrio. Now, Nitrio is a network management software and what they do is they will custom build a monitoring solution for your company. And uh, I would imagine there's somebody in the Ask Noah Telegram chat that you can talk to, uh, because like I said, this is actually a product from, from one, one, of, uh, one of our listeners' companies. Um, but I ha- we had a, uh, a good friend, well, Chris, that was just on the air. Uh, he is a IT administrator for the, uh, the schools in West Virginia. And he set this up and he said, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And it, he showed it to his boss and his boss was like, this is fantastic. This is really great. Oh, uh, Chris is actually here. Let's see. Let's pull him down. How do I, uh, how do I do that? Let's see here. I'm going to pull him down. Hopefully this doesn't get me in trouble. Nope. I can't. Well, if he can come in here, that'd be great. If not, that's fine too. I'll just kind of keep an eye out. We only got a couple minutes left in the program, but he presented it to his, his boss and, uh, he said his boss was actually blown away by it and it works very, very well. So, yeah, if you are looking for a network monitoring software, I personally have always used Zappix and I think it's really fantastic. It has been, it doesn't do quite as much as uh, Nitrio does. So if you need something a little more advanced, then you might have to, uh, might have to check Nitrio, but they will give you a free demo of it. And so you can see if it works for you and then they'll give you a custom price for what it would be to implement it for your environment. Hey, did you know that this episode is available as a podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. While you're on the Ask Noah dashboard, help us improve the show. If you have an idea of how we can make this show better, how we can improve it, we'd love to hear from you. We all, we, all we ask is for your tip. We don't ask for your name. We don't ask for any contact info. And the reason is simple. We don't care. That sounds bad, but we're not interested in who you are per se, as much as your ideas. That's really what we're interested in. And you can submit those anonymously at asknoahshow.com slash better. Let us know how we can make this show better. Join the ongoing discussion in telegram, telegram.asknoahshow.com. That's where the discussion takes place 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Of course, if you want the latest information, follow us on Twitter at asknoahshow on Facebook facebook.com slash ask Noah show. We're going to try and get better about posting more on social media. And of course there's obviously a photo stream anytime we're live at an event. 
The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telsus for providing our phone systems. Ben, our producer. Simon Quigley filling in as call screener and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to the harm reduction report coming up next on the all-new 88.3 FM. (laughs) 